Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 589 with Stephen Shapiro. Stephen is a pro when it comes to getting a ton of good, creative, clever ideas in a jiffy. He shows us how to do just the same. So you'll learn one, the biggest red flag in problem solving. Two, how to work with and not around constraints. And three, how an emphasis on solutions can actually hinder us. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items you've referenced, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP589. Now here's Stephen's story. For over 20 years, Stephen Shapiro has presented his provocative strategies on innovation to audiences in 50 countries. During his 15-year tenure with a consulting firm Accenture, he led a 20,000-person innovation practice. He's the author of six books, including his latest, Invisible Solutions, 25 Lenses That Reframe and Help Solve Difficult Business Problems. His personality poker system has been used around the world to create high-performing innovation teams. In 2015, he was inducted into the Speaker Hall of Fame. Big thanks to Stephen for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com now, here's Stephen. Stephen, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, I'm very excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. And I first want to hear a little bit about your childhood dream of being a game show host. What's the story? <laughs> uh, growing up, I would watch like the Gong Show, which was one of my favorite shows because it was just so ridiculously goofy. And in particular, Chuck Barris, who was the host was just, I mean, I, I loved how animated he was and how crazy he was. And I just became so fascinated with him. And in fact, I got to meet him at Book Expo one year, which to me was sort of a, a weird dream come true. That's cool. Did you have a particular game show host voice or style that you would engage in? And could we hear a sample? Oh, I think it would probably be the Chuck Barris. Like, oh man, this is like just the craziest act I've ever seen. I just, I mean, I, I just, I loved his physical animation, his voice animation, the craziness, the antics. It was, I don't know. I just thought it was a lot of fun. You know, I, I think that in high school, I actually won the award for, you know, the senior superlatives, like most likely to succeed, yada, yada, most likely to host a game show, which is very specific and a peculiar category that they had. It's not a game show, but sure enough, I am hosting a show. The The seniors were right. Well, that's awesome. So if you were to do a game show, I'm just curious, what, what game show do you love? Like if you were to be a game show host, which one would you want to be a host of? 
you know, I'm not an aficionado by any means, but the most ridiculous concept, which was cracking me up, was Awake. It was on Netflix. It's newer. And it's about people who are sleep deprived and have to tackle these challenges because I'm a big fan of sleep. It's a recurring theme on the show. And and I think that that just very much resonates like, yeah, I I can't do Jack when I'm sleep deprived and neither can many of these contestants. Oh, that's awesome. I'm gonna have to check that one out. Yeah, they have to like count quarters like all night. It's a goofy concept, but it provides a powerful, I think, reminder for being awesome at your job is get enough sleep. So that's one tip. But I want to hear you've got more than one, nay, 25 lenses that reframe and help solve difficult business problems in your book, Invisible Solutions. And so I'm intrigued because of that. Wow, that's a lot of lenses. I like that. So lay it on us. You're an innovation expert. What's the big idea behind this book here? Well, we're always trying to solve complex problems. And unfortunately, the biggest mistake we make in trying to solve problems is to focus on the solution. Because if we're solving the wrong problem, we'll never get the right answer. And we don't take enough time to step back and say, am I asking an important question? Am I solving an important problem? And have I reframed the problem in a way that will allow me to get better or at least different solutions? And so it really comes back to the question. The questions we ask are going to drive the solutions that we get. Well, so that that makes sense to me. Could you perhaps make it come to life for us with a a vivid example in terms of uh, a person or a team banging their head against the wall, making minimal progress because they weren't asking a great question, and then the transformation they experienced when they started doing it right? Sure. So one which I really like because it demonstrates a really great thought process is a, a team of dental experts who are trying to create a whitening toothpaste. And pretty much all whitening toothpaste uses abrasives or bleach. And they decided they wanted to tackle the problem. How do we create a whitening toothpaste that doesn't use abrasives and doesn't use bleach? And they spent a lot of time and spent a lot of money trying to come up with complex chemical compounds and new formulas. And they didn't find anything until somebody shifted the question. And it's a really profound question because it's only two words. It's who else? And so when they shifted it to, instead of saying, how do we, the dental experts, solve this particular problem, they asked who else have solved a similar problem. And so they asked who else makes whites whiter. And in this case, they realized it's laundry detergent. And the company that was working on this problem, in addition to having a dental care division, also had a laundry detergent division. And they found the solution by talking to the people in laundry care. Convenient. Yeah, it was a totally different solution, a crazy solution, but it actually worked. I was like, well, what do you know? We've got laundry experts in our same company. That's that's really handy. So, okay, who else? That, that's a handy question. So then let's let's talk about just that. So you say in many ways it starts by asking better questions. So what are some of the best ways we can go about doing just that? Well, the, the first step is to recognize that we have a lot of assumptions in the questions that we're working on. We do tend to limit our ability to find new paths because we tend to do what's worked in the past. So the first thing is to just really question, like we've always done it this way, or we've never done this way. Once you start hearing people say that, that really to me should be a red flag to say, hmm, are we really moving in the right direction or are we just moving in the direction we've always moved in in the past? And then once you acknowledge that our questions tend to be not well formulated, then you need process of deconstructing the problem. So in a lot of cases, for example, we'll ask big, broad questions like, okay, how can I improve the business? Well, that's a big question. If I asked, you know, a thousand people 
who worked for a company to give me their ideas on how to improve the business, I'd probably get 10,000 ideas of which almost none of them will really be valuable. So we need to go through that process of stepping back and saying, what are we really trying to solve here? Okay, certainly. So then that's so broad, we might zoom into, I don't know, when now my strategy consulting hats come in, it's like, well, hey, there's either, financially speaking, increasing revenue or reducing costs. And then you could talk, you know, even more broadly in terms of like environmental stewardship, corporate responsibility, like improve business, I hear you, has, has a many, many different lenses or layers to it. So I guess what is the right level of broadness or breadth? Because your example I could see is, is too broad, but I think you might get maybe too narrow in the sense of how could we increase our toothpaste revenue by 4% or more? I feel like that you're probably going to be missing out on some real gems if you get that narrow. Well, exactly. I mean, I call it the Goldilocks principle because sometimes they're too soft. The bed's too soft and they're too broad, too abstract. And sometimes they're too specific. They're too hard. Uh, and so we need to just make sure we're asking questions that are just right. And that takes practice. Like you were saying, there, there are some fantastic examples of where a problem was framed to assume that the solution came from a particular area of expertise, and by opening it up, new solutions were developed. So my favorite story is actually the Exxon Valdez oil spill back in 1989. For 20 years, for nearly two decades, they were trying to solve the problem of how do we prevent an oil-water mixture from freezing and couldn't find a solution. And when they shifted the question to something that was less specific, that had nothing to do with oil or temperature, but it was actually a common fluid dynamics issue called viscous shearing, which basically means a dense liquid, if it's put under force or acceleration, will start to act like a solid. They found a solution in six weeks by somebody who worked in the construction industry working with cement. So there's that little art of being able to ask better questions, not too broad or too specific. Well, so lay it on us. It's an art, but for us non-artisans, you know, how can we start to do it a little bit better right away? Well, the first thing is to ask yourself, am I assuming that the solution is going to come from a particular area of expertise. And if it is, well, then try to broaden it. If it's too generic, so I'll give you some of the lenses. That's probably the best way to go. So if, if I'm asking the question, how do I improve revenues? One of the lenses that I might want to focus on is what is called the leverage lens. And the leverage lens is the first one. And it basically says, if I could only solve one part of this problem, what would it be? So you might ask, well, where do we get our greatest revenues right now? Who are our most profitable customers? Where are our most profitable geographies? What are our most profitable products? Whatever it might be, how we maybe focus on that. So that might be the first step is to find the leverage point. Or you could use the second lens, which is to deconstruct it to say, well, I don't even know what's most important, but let me break it down like you did. Well, revenues could be made up of a combination of a number of different factors. There's financial factors, there's social factors. And so how do I break it down into smaller parts and figure out which one to solve? Okay. Well, well, well hey, let's just keep it running. Let's hear about reduce, eliminate, and hyponym. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm saying that right. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that's perfect. So the, the reduce lens basically says if we're trying to solve something that's too big, how do we sort of reduce it down to something smaller? Let's talk about the eliminate lens, though, because I think there's a really good one. We so often ask ourselves, what can we add? What can we add? What features can we add? How can we make something better? But we rarely ask, what can we remove? So like right now, you know, everybody's meeting on Zoom uh, at this time because we can't meet in person. Well, what most people have done is just automated the meeting. But what if 
you started eliminating meetings. What aspects of meetings could you eliminate? So what can we remove from the solution? That will, in many cases, give us a much more elegant solution. So those are those two, but let's talk about the hyponym and hypernym. And basically what these are is lenses, which are about abstraction. So if I want to make something more specific, what I'd want to do is take a word. So for example, if I'm trying to solve a transportation problem, maybe I need to break it down into vehicle, which is a lower, more specific version of transportation. And maybe from vehicle could go down to car or motorcycle or bicycle. So by changing those types of words, we now start shifting the language because the, the important thing is we can change one word in a problem statement and get a completely different range of solutions. And, and so I guess hypo and hyper just mean less than or more than or below or greater, I believe. It's Latin or Greek roots here. So I, I guess you're just suggesting that we have, as artisans practicing this art, we have the ability to choose specifically as opposed to like a synonym or antonym, meaning the same thing or the opposite thing, something that means the thing more narrow or more broadly speaking. Right. So for example, I wrote a book. If I look at a hypernym for a book, which is a higher level thing, well, offering. Media. Media. Yeah. Or product or offering. I mean, these are all higher level words. Okay. Well. Content. Yeah, so exactly. So, but if you think about it, how do I create a great book is a different question than how do I create a great offering or a great product? And so we started to look at, okay, well, if it's a product, what are the range of products we're going to include with the book? And that's how we started getting into multimedia and a number of different tools that go along with it. So you can just change one word and get a completely different range of solutions. Okay, so I'm hearing you there. And then by, by doing this, we all of those five lenses there give us a, an approach to reducing the abstraction and getting clear on, hey, what do you mean by book <laughs> or, 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 or whatever word or, or problem that you're after? So then, well, let's just keep it rolling from your table of contents, if we may. Sure. So then on the flip side, if we want to increase abstraction, I guess the benefits of that are that we get a, a broader array of potential solutions that, that fit into there. But again, if you're if you're too broad, then then you might just be kind of all over the place and not grab it onto something. So, so what are some of the best tools or lenses for increasing abstraction? Well, so we talked about the analogy lens, which is the toothpaste example. And by the way, the solution to the toothpaste example, I think is actually pretty cool because when the toothpaste people went over and asked the laundry care to people, how do you make whites whiter when you're not using bleach? They were told something interesting. They were told, we don't. We don't make whites whiter. We actually make whites bluer. Laundry detergent is blue for a reason because it creates an optical illusion that prevents the reflection of yellow. No kidding. And so the toothpaste they created actually has a blue dye in it that is the same blue dye that's in laundry detergent. So the analogy lens is all about who else has solved a similar problem, but in a different place. And I think that's a, just a, always a, a fun one to use. Well, let's talk about a few more examples of analogies there. So we've got the, the toothpaste whitening versus laundry whitening. Lay on us a, a few more examples for how we might uh, draw analogies. Sure. So probably one of the most powerful examples is how an oil pipeline engineer helped a cardiologist solve a medical problem. Basically, this cardiologist was talking to the oil pipeline engineer said, look, one of the problems we have as human beings is we get clots. We get clots in our body. And if the clot goes up into the brain or the heart, we'll get a stroke or we'll die. And we've not yet figured out a way of preventing that from happening. And when it does happen, how do we remove it? And the oil engineer said, we have that problem all the time. We call it sludge, which is basically dirt and muck that gets in the pipelines. And he created this filter 
that goes in pipelines to filter out and break up the sludge. And the two of them work together to create a product which actually goes in the body that does exactly the same thing. And it saved thousands and thousands of lives. And I think it's just so fascinating that an oil pipeline engineer found the solution to our health problem. That is cool. What do I call that thing? I think I've heard of it before. What's the medical device called? Uh, it's called the Greenfield Vena Cava Filter. Okay. There, there you have it. That's nifty. Well, then I've heard of these stories and they're kind of cool and fun you know, in hindsight, like, well, how about that, that these different disciplines got together and they made something cool. But I wonder sort of when you're in the heat of it, how'd you go about getting those analogies flowing? Like it probably would occur to you, you know what I got to do is I got to call a petroleum engineer or a pipeline. You'd say who else has solved a problem like this? So that's one way to start triggering some of that. Although if you've got no familiarity with oil pipelines, you may have no idea that they've, they've solved problems like that. So can you maybe can you walk us through perhaps a, a thought process by which we're utilizing analogy to to spark new promising pathways of exploration? Sure. So the first step is to pause and just say, I never assume that I have all the answers. So maybe somebody else has the answer. And when you ask who else, sometimes, and, and you can just reframe it a lot of different ways. So for example, I focus on innovation. Okay, well, who else does innovation? Well, that's a little broad. And then I start thinking about, okay, well, I'm trying to solve difficult problems or I'm trying to make impossible things happen. And it's like, okay, well, who else makes impossible things possible? And it's like, bingo, magicians. And so I spend a lot of my time hanging out with magicians, studying the way they create their magic tricks. Because I learn as much from a magician about the thought process of solving a complex problem as I would with a fellow innovator. And it's just that inquiry into, okay, well, who else could it be? Who else could it be? And if I'm trying to deal with something with speed, okay, well, I'm trying to make something faster. Okay, maybe I talk to a race car team, or I might be talking to anybody who deals with speed and movement. And as you start thinking about it, things become obvious pretty quickly. Well, yeah, that, that's funny. This reminds me when you said speed, uh, we had a previous guest who said that ideas are feats of association. So that was a nice little quotable gem. When I think about speed, I'm reminded of the book, The Goal, if, if you've read it about uh, the theory of constraints and how his epiphany aha moment about how to make his manufacturing plant better occurred when he was leading his Boy Scouts on a hike and there was one Boy Scout had way too many items in his backpack, which was weighing him down, slowing him down, and they could only move as fast as Herbie, the slowest moving person. And then he's like, aha, what are the Herbies, the slowest moving elements, the bottlenecks in our plant? And then and then away you go. So what I think is it was nifty about that is that I guess on the outside looking in, when you start going down that pathway of, of talking to a magician, like, you know what, I'm going to talk to a magician or a race car team, you have no idea yet what they're going to say and how it may be applicable. But I imagine, is this fair to say, once you get into the details of, oh yeah, well we do this to the wheels for that reason, then it may very well be at that that next level down that you're starting to, to get those sparks of aha. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. So for example, an insurance company, their customers were complaining that when somebody filed a claim, it was like, filing a claim into a black hole. They didn't know who their adjuster was. They didn't know how much money they were getting when somebody's going to show up to look at their house. And they're working on this problem. And I, I love the way they found the solution, which was having the question in their mind, how do we create transparency in the claims process? And it wasn't like they sat around and they brainstormed. Actually, as it turns out, they were sitting around and brainstorming, didn't come up with an answer. Somebody went off to order dinner, came back and said, I have the answer. 
it was Domino's Pizza. Because if you order a pizza on Domino's, you got the pizza tracker, which tells you basically every single step of the process. Okay, the pizza's in the oven, it's being made by a certain person, it's out of the oven, it's in the box, it's out for delivery, it's at your house. Well, they modeled what Domino's did for the pizza tracker and created a claims tracker. So it's just amazing sometimes how the solutions can come from totally different industries. Pizza delivery and insurance, you would never think of having anything to do with each other, but actually you can get some great solutions when you start thinking that way. Okay, very cool. So that's the lens of analogy. Can you share some of your other favorite means of increasing abstraction? In a lot of cases, you just need to start thinking more broadly. Again, it could be broader words. Uh, you can use hypernyms, which is what we talked about before. It, it's really, to me, sometimes the best thing to do is just ask, how do we make this less specific? And that tends to be a very simple way of, of getting to a higher level. I mean, we could talk more about the lenses specifically, but I find sometimes those two lenses are pretty straight. Those two categories, the reduce abstraction and the increase abstraction lenses are relatively straightforward. You just need to give it some thought. It's the other ones that become a little more interesting because then they're really starting to twist and turn the questions a lot. Okay. Well, let's hit those in just a moment, but I've got to know. Number seven, result. What is this lens? So the result lens is asking, what is the outcome? So instead of focusing on the process, which is what we often do, and the process tends to be maybe the solution, we need to focus on the results. So let me give you a quick example of two lenses, one that increases abstraction and one that reduces abstraction for the same problem. So some work that was being done in the UK around the education system. So the question was, how can we improve the education system? What they realized was, is that the education system was actually a means to an end. The goal, the result lens, would be why do we have an education system? It's to improve a child's learning. So when it was changed from education system to child's learning, they then used the leverage lens and they asked, okay, well, if we're trying to improve a child's learning, what does science tell us in terms of the factors that have the greatest impact on a child's learning? And the greatest impact on a child's learning based on many studies is actually positive parental involvement, not helicopter parenting the way some people do it, but like really getting actively involved in the child's learning. And so when that question was asked, a solution was found very quickly that there was a, an experimental school that had 100% positive parental involvement. So we focused on the result first, and then we focused on the leverage lens and got a very elegant solution. Well, now we got to know, Stephen, what was the elegant solution? Finish the story. <laughs> well, the elegant solution was uh, the school in Bogota, Colombia, of all places, where people are super busy, is they actually had parents come into the classroom and sit in the chairs that the, the students would sit in and actually go through the process. It didn't take a lot of time, but going through that experience gave the parents a deeper appreciation for what the children went through when they were in the classroom. And then when they went back home, they were given some tools to help them engage the child during the learning process. And they got, I mean, here are people who are busy, they don't have a lot of money, but they got 100% of the parents involved in that process. Well, yeah, I think that's so powerful in, in terms of, there's a world of difference in terms of hearing about, this is what the lesson was about versus, I don't know how long they were in the, the seats, and they're probably kind of small. <laughs> small seats for 15 minutes squirming uncomfortable, um, is to say, oh, okay, I, I, I see you know, exactly what that experience is like in, in doing so. So, all right, thank you. Well, then, yeah, let's talk about some of that changing perspective stuff. How do you recommend we go about making that happen? Yeah. So a lot of times the best thing to do is look at the problem from a different angle. So one of my favorite lenses is the resequence lens. 
And the resequence lens basically says that if your problem or even your solution assumes some level of timing, how do we shift the timing on it? So how do we predict or how do we postpone? How do we do something earlier? How do we do something later? So for example, paint. If you go into a hardware store, it used to be that if you wanted green paint, you would walk down the aisle and you would grab a gallon of green paint. Now, if you want green paint, they ask you, well, what color of green? What tone of green? Oh yeah, they got hundreds of greens. Yeah, and then they mix it for you there. So they've postponed the mixing of the paint. They actually create the color of the paint after you know what color somebody wants. And that's just a great way of getting lower levels of inventory, for example, greater customization for people's needs. So it's like if you go into McDonald's, if they make it to your order, well, that would be postponing it. They would wait until somebody comes in, but during the busiest times, they might have to predict. They might actually have to make 20 Big Macs so that if somebody walks into the store, they've got a Big Mac ready and they know that 15 people in the next hour are going to order a Big Mac, so we'll have it ready for them. And it gives us a lot greater efficiency. All right. And let's hear about the emotion lens. The emotion lens says that we tend to ask questions that are very analytical, but what if we add some emotion to it? In many cases, positive emotion is really one of the goals. So for example, instead of saying, you know, how do we engage our customers or how do we get our customers to like us? You know, how do we get our customers to feel like they're at home when they're in our stores? That actually has some emotion to it. Or maybe we could ask the question, how do we create a wow experience for our customers? You know, if it's our employees, instead of saying, how do we increase, you know, employee satisfaction, maybe it's how do we get a five out of five on our customer surveys? So it's more of a positive spin and a more emotional spin rather than just numbers and facts. But you can also go on the negative side too, which is pretty fascinating. I like the way you've articulated that in terms of as frequently the difference between something that I really kind of get and resonate with versus just sort of like, oh, okay, it is the emotion element. So if we're talking about, I don't know, employee engagement, okay, there's a term and a tool and a metric and, you know, best practices and, and all that associated. So if you ask the question, how could we improve employee engagement? You're going to get a very different set of responses than if you ask the question, how could we make a work experience so awesome folks never want to leave? Exactly, yeah. And, and they're like, oh, well, I'll tell you. Well, well, we, and, and so and then things can really fly in terms of, well, I, I never wanted to leave, you know, this workplace because, you know, this manager really cared about my development and invested in all these things. I never wanted to leave this workplace because they had kegs of, I don't know, whatever, delicious beverage. So I really dig that this probably good science on on the brain neuroscience here in terms of you are tapping into a different part of the brain straight up when you are, are posing the questions in that way. Well, and what's interesting is the way you originally framed it is, you know, how do we improve? Anytime you say improve, you imply there's something wrong. And so the brain now starts processing the information differently. Okay, well, I'm trying to fix a problem rather than elevate and lift something up. Even those very, very subtle words can have a huge impact. Well, and I think what's what's intriguing about this is it's almost like, maybe we'll zoom out for a bit in terms of just how our brain works. I don't think this is just me. Stephen, you let me know. It's like once a question is posed, it's like I'm just off to the races in terms of generating answers for it. And it's just like, away we go, you know, sprinting forward, like I am an answer generating machine. And so... It follows that almost like 
I'm thinking of, I'm, I'm imagining like a compass here in terms of like 360 degrees. If you have a subtle difference in your question, that might be off by like just three degrees from the other question. I am effectively pointed in a new direction for my answer generating brain that can lead to a, a wildly different final destination. Spot on. Spot on. And in fact, I, th I think it's useful for us to just step back. And since we're talking about the brain, look, the brain's primary function is survival. And so if you think back to the way that we're originally wired, we would, especially in times of a crisis, run quickly away from the threat. But the problem is if we run quickly, we might be running in the wrong direction, which means we're moving further away from the ultimate goal. And so even though we're wired to, as you said, identify the problem quickly, find a solution quickly, and you know move as quickly as we possibly can, that doesn't mean that's gonna give us the best results. And so when you can put the pause button on it, so like Einstein reputedly said, if I had an hour to save the world, I would spend 59 minutes defining the problem, one minute finding solutions. And I just think that's a, he never actually said exactly that, but I love that metaphorically speaking as a, as a mindset of saying, look, if we're going to move somewhere, let's move in the right direction. But in order to do that, we need to make sure we know what the right direction is. Well, yeah, Einstein, I mean, if you compare that to Justin Timberlake and Madonna, was it four minutes to save the world in the song? Well, I mean, that's pretty impressive work, Einstein. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Back to business, uh, Stephen. So that's a bit about changing perspective. Let's hear a bit about how you switch elements. What does that mean and how do we do it? So switch elements has some really great stories and I'll, I'll give you one. So one of the lenses is called the flip lens and the flip lens is basically saying, instead of solving for this, we solve for that. And the short version of a story that I love is an airport that had its passengers complaining that the bags took too long when they were waiting at baggage claims. So they spent a ton of money trying to solve the problem. How do we speed up the bags? And they basically cut the wait time, they cut the amount of time in half from about 15 to 20 minutes down to eight to 10 minutes. And so they thought, this is a 50% improvement. This is awesome. People are gonna be excited. Passengers were still complaining. They were still waiting too long. And they realized they couldn't speed up the bags anymore. Then they had an epiphany. It only took the passengers one to three minutes to get to the baggage claim. So that's why they were waiting. So instead of speeding up the bags, they slowed down the passengers. They literally reconfigured the airport so that it would take on average eight to 10 minutes for the passengers to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. And now they get to the baggage carousel, their bags are waiting and we experience wait time differently than we do walk time. And I think that's just a, a really fun example of how solving a different factor, like wait time is actually speed of the bags and speed of the passengers. And they were only looking at one aspect of it. And I've heard that software user interfaces will do this too, in terms of, what they are displaying so that you feel as though you're waiting less, even though the actual stopwatch time between when you've, I don't know, click the thing and when you get what you want is unchanged. So, so you can see that in, in the reality of uh, physical space as well as a digital spaces. Uh, so that, that's flipping. Tell us what's the lens of pain versus gain? Well, pain versus gain is basically saying that most people will take action to eliminate a loss, prevent a loss, or to eliminate a pain rather than trying to get a gain. So if one of the things you're trying to do is, let's say you're, you're a bank, for example, and you're trying to sell people financial wealth, and that might be a nice gain, but if people aren't able to pay their bills right now, maybe the focus, the pain that you want to solve is how do you make sure that even in a time when people are out of work, their bills are still being paid? So it's flipping it so if you can be the aspirin for somebody's pain, 
that will typically get greater reaction and adoption from people than it will be if you give them something nice to have. Well, and that financial bank example reminds me, I don't know who said this, but I think it's so true, like about sort of financial planners, financial advisors, they they say, oh, you know, if you call your client and wake them up at 3 a.m. to tell them about an investment opportunity that's going to make them $20,000, then they're going to fire you and say, don't wake me up. But if you can wake them up at 3 a.m. to tell them about what they got to do to avoid losing $20,000, they're like, wow, this guy is amazing. <laughs> I've got the ultimate financial planner on my team. So, so that's handy in terms of sort of getting urgency. I wonder, we talked about previously about positive emotions, you know, triggering happy things in, in terms of, of results of, of creativity, ideation. I don't know, when we focus on brainstorming about removing pain, is there a sense of constraint that happens on us mentally? Well, you, you say it like constraints are bad. I'm actually a big fan of constraints. I think, in fact, constraints are the key to good problem solving and innovation. So we always say think outside the box, but come back to those first set of lenses we were talking about. When we have a big, broad, abstract problem, well, we tend to just come up with a lot of boring, obvious, and irrelevant solutions. So I say, don't think outside the box, find a better box shift the question. Instead of speeding up the bags, how do we slow down the passengers? We could shift it from how do we reduce the wait time to how do we improve the wait experience? We could change just a couple of words. And now all of a sudden people don't mind waiting if it's a great wait experience. So it's really shifting the language, shifting the box and the constraints, but we still have constraints and those are valuable constraints. Yeah. But you know, that reminds me thinking about uh, one of my favorite restaurants, Bacon and Eggs here in Chicago. You can get, and this doesn't seem that hard. I don't know why all restaurants don't do this. You can get a mug of coffee started and going and sipping as you're chilling and waiting for your table. And it's like, I don't even mind waiting for my table. It's like, this is part of the experience of bacon and eggs is we're over here with our coffee, chatting away with my party, comfortable. And, oh, and here's the table. You know, we feel great about it, even though we still had to wait, but the experience was awesome. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. And another one, which is maybe more about distraction rather than great experience, but you think about Uber and Lyft, you know, you get off the plane, you're standing outside. What is everybody doing? They're staring at their phones. And what are they looking at? They're looking at this like microscopic car that's moving infinitesimally slow on their screen, yet somehow it gives them a sense of comfort to see it move like, you know, a millimeter every minute. It's like, it's working, it's happening, it's in process. And something's happening. So we feel, we feel movement and that's also a way. So we can distract people, we can engage people. The, the point is there's never one solution because there's never one question. And the more we question our questions, the more we'll be able to find better solutions. All right. Well, then the, the final set of lenses is about zeroing in. Can you regale us with this? Sure. I think these are a great place to start. So you have, for example, the real problem lens, which is just to make sure, am I solving the right problem? One of my favorite ones, though, is the real business lens. And it's to really just even question, what business am I in? So for example, if you asked me, let's say a year ago, what business am I in? I would say, I'm a keynote speaker. I give speeches. I talk about innovation, but I'm a keynote speaker. And then what I realized was, is especially now where we can't meet in person, being a keynote speaker, there's no stages to speak on. And if you are so focused on being a keynote speaker, if that's your business, you're in trouble. But if you shift things, so I think of myself as a problem solver and an innovator. And so I help companies solve their problems and help them be able to solve their own problems. 
Well, that's shifting my business. And by really asking what business am I in and what problems am I solving as a result of that helps me identify new opportunities. All right. Well, well, if I could put you on the spot, Stephen, could you give us a kind of a, a capstone finale story or example in which we are uh, utilizing uh, multiples of these lenses to get from stuck to somewhere really cool? Well, let me give you a story that I think really wraps it up nicely. It only uses one of the lenses, but it's one we haven't talked about. And I think it really makes a powerful point. I lived in England for five years, and of that time there, I worked for a Formula One race car team for three years. So if you don't know Formula One, they're basically fast cars. And the thing which I loved were the pit crews that would be able to change the tires, and back when I worked with them, fuel the car, do minor maintenance in a matter of seconds. And so I would watch them, and I was always amazed. And I remember having a conversation with somebody from the Formula One team. It's like, how do they get them to go so fast? And the way they would typically do it was they'd sit there with a stopwatch and they would tell them to go fast and they would time them over and over and over. And no matter what they did, no matter how hard they tried, there was a point that they couldn't go one one thousandth of a second faster. They decided to try a number of different techniques. And the one that they landed on that was quite interesting was they told the pit crew members, you're not going to be timed, but rather we're going to be evaluating you on your smoothness, your style. And so as you're changing the tires, think smooth. Back when I worked with them, they'd fuel the car, think smooth. And they, of course, were timing them, but they had them go fast, but thinking about their movements. And they found that they were able to shave off two tenths to three tenths of a second off of their best previous time. And the pit crew, when asked if they thought they were going faster or slower, felt they were going slower. And I call this the performance paradox, which is one of the lens, which is paradoxically, sometimes the more we focus on a goal, the less likely we are to achieve that goal. And I think the same thing is true with solutions. The more we focus on the solution, quite often, the less likely we are to find a solution. But if we can stop, pause, and ask a better question and make sure we're reframing it and moving in the right direction, we'll find better solutions faster, paradoxically, than if we just jumped and try to focus on the solutions. Mm, well, that's good. That's good. Was it Coach John Wooden who said something like, move very quickly, but don't hurry? Uh, something like, I've butchering it. But that notion that really does resonate. And, and I think maybe in terms of, hey, if, if you're keynote speaking, if you're, if you're dancing, if you're doing any number of things that have some precision and elegance to them, fixating on, oh, I gotta, I gotta nail this. I gotta crush this. I gotta, you know, knock it out of the park. I gotta go fast, fast, fast. Could be just the opposite of what you want for that, that smooth flow. So, and, and then that could carry over Share another one, please, if you could, with the performance paradox. So, so there's the notion of, of speed. What would be another place where we overfocus on performance and, and it works to our detriment? One of the other examples which someone told me once, which I thought was just really fascinating, is he worked in a home for people who are you know, the, the elderly. And one of the concerns that everybody had was that if you would or fall, you would break a hip or break a bone. And, and it's one of the leading causes of trauma and death and everything else. And so what they initially started doing is trying to get people to not fall. And the problem was when people started focusing on not falling, they would actually fall more and they would hurt themselves more. So what he did was he actually decided to totally do exactly the opposite. And he said, instead of getting them to worry about not falling, he's going to actually get them comfortable with falling. And he created classes around people falling and how do you fall and having fun with falling. And the second that people stopped focusing on not falling, they stopped falling. And so it just, it's, it's interesting to just see like, and a lot of it has to do with stress. If you think about creativity, we know that if I put you under a stopwatch 
And I said, come up with a thousand ideas or however many ideas you would really struggle because the stress associated with the time will cause you that. And it's why a lot of times when we're goal oriented in companies, we're less likely to achieve those goals because we get so focused on, on the goal that we stop actually focusing on the process and the, the whole creative endeavor that takes place beforehand. All right. Well, Stephen, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I think that the most important thing for me to just to say is that being able to ask better questions, to question your questions, I found to be one of the most important skills. And I know in a lot of companies, people will tell you, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. My perspective is, I don't want solutions. I want better problems, well thought out problems, reframed problems. And if you become a master of problem solving and problem reframing, according to the World Economic Forum, that is the number one skill that people and organizations need right now in order to stay competitive. And so I think that's uh, hopefully just proof enough to keep focusing on that. All right. Thank you. Now, could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? There's one which is from Mark Twain. I won't get it exactly right, but basically said, there's nothing new. It's impossible because basically everything is just old colored pieces of glass that get twisted and turned around and create something new. And I I love that perspective because I'm inspired to think about how do I, instead of trying to invent something every time, how do I connect new ideas in new ways? And I think that's just a great way to look at it. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? For me, anything having to do with confirmation bias. Basically, anytime we have a strongly held belief about something, we're only going to find evidence to support that belief. And so for me, that's a really fascinating part of business and life uh, is understanding that. And how about a favorite book? Probably my all-time favorite book is Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman by Richard Feynman. That is a great title. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great book. Well, I'm intrigued. I've heard of the legend of Richard Feynman, but uh, I haven't read the book, so thank you. And and how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? One which just keeps me sane is something called SaneBox, which is an email tool. Oh, I use it too. I mean, it's just like, I, I look at my inbox and it's very, very little. And then my sane later folder is like humongous, but I was like, I won't worry about it till later. So that definitely keeps me sane. And a favorite habit? Hot tub. Uh, I try to, when I can in the morning, wake up, just sit in the hot tub, just meditate, quiet my brain, I find it just prepares me for the day. And is there a particular nugget that you share that really seems to connect and resonate and gets quoted back to you often? When it comes to innovation, the one which a lot of people resonate with is my expression, innovate where you differentiate. So not all problems are important, but if you can focus on the problems that actually help your organization stand out from the competition and you put more energy into solving those problems, that really has a huge impact. All right. And If folks want to learn more or get in touch with you, where would you point them? To learn about the book, InvisibleSolutionsBook.com. And there's videos and tools. You can download the 25 lenses and everything from there. That's probably the best place to just learn more about me and the book. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I think the, the challenge really is to, coming back to something you said earlier, we are solution machines. If we can just stop focusing on our ideas and actually put the pause button and make sure we're really focused on what will create the greatest value, what will move us forward in the best way, what will create the most elegant solution that will always give you a better result than if we just run with our top of our head ideas. All right, Steven, this has been a treat. I wish you all the best. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. I think Steven has such an incredibly important, simple, 
and forgettable point. I mean, it's things that I think we've probably, you may have heard this before. I've heard it before and I forget to do it is to take a moment to reframe, rephrase the problem and changing one word can change all the doors that uh, get opened up in your brain. So I know it's tempting to rush at the solution and go crack it as fast as you can, but it really does pay to take that time to rephrase it, restate it, and and good things flow from that. So thanks to Stephen for that and those other wisdom nuggets, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP589. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest, Steve Hers. He is an impressive agent who's done some negotiation, persuasion over a full career and has some perspectives on how we can awe people and build a tremendous influence and good vibes with them. So I hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> Auto Trader.